Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Frank. I'm one of the. I'm privileged to serve as one of the elders here at Durwood Bible Church, and I want to thank you all for coming out today. I want to especially extend extend a warm welcome to our visitors, whether you're from out of town visiting family or this is one of your first time visiting with us. I want to extend a warm welcome to you. Um, uh, and I want to say that uh, Colin will be back next week uh, resuming his series in First John. And I'll say, like, firsthand, being an elder, getting to know Colin and work alongside him, I am very thankful for Colin. I'm, we're truly blessed to have him as our pastor. Um, and so, th- but this morning I'm stepping in and we're going to look at a passage in scripture that has to do with a very large debt. To co- so to kind of get us started this morning, I want to do a very brief trivia about um, debt in the United States, consumer debt in the United States. And uh, I got this information off debt.org uh, and Experian.com. What would you say, what would you guess is the average Individual credit card debt in the United States. Throw out a guess. Come on. 30,000, a little high. How about another guess? 5,500. That's average. I don't know if they took every, you know, they took 330 million as our population and divided. I'm not sure exactly how they came up with that. $5,525. What do you think is the total bill of credit card debt as of October 2021? What was the total credit card debt in the United States in, uh, in the fall of 2021? 50 billion? Let's go way north of that. $790 billion. All right, and then uh, our our last thing here, if you looked at um, the total American household debt, that includes mortgage debt, I'm sure it includes car loans, whatever debt, total American household debt hit a record in the spring of 2021. What would you venture as a guest for the total American outstanding household debt. 400 billion go way, way, way north of, you need to go from a letter that doesn't start with, a, a, a letter that starts with T. $14.6 trillion of American household debt in 2021. So this morning, we're going to look at a story, like I said, that, it, that involves an enormous debt. Um, and let me see here. So we're, we're going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and 35. So if you can kind of find your way there while I get us uh, set the context here a little bit. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at this parable. We'll read it, then we'll walk through it um, briefly. Then we'll kind of look at our debt. What's our debt to God? And then we'll look at God's mercy and forgiveness, and then we'll talk a little bit about how do we live this out. So let me just uh, join me in a, in a word of prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We just ask you to work amongst us now, open our eyes and hearts to hear your word. 
Thank you in your name. Okay, so the context here, if you've turned to Matthew um, chapter 18, verse 21, just before this is a well-known kind of passage where Jesus teaches if a brother sins against you, you're to go to him and tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen, you know, bring two or three and so on. So that's right, right above here. And then Peter comes up after this. Um, and and uh, th- that's where our passage starts. So let's pick it up there. Peter in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart so um, we can we can see this this parable deals with forgiveness and forgiveness obviously is a very important topic for us who are followers of Christ in fact if you look um at the word forgiveness or the or the variations of it, you know, forgive, forgiveness, forgiven, forgave. Like how many times would you think, you don't have to shout out loud, but how many times do you think that word or the variations of that word show up in the New Testament? Just kind of guess in your mind. Well, in the English Standard Version, what we're using today, it shows up 77 times in 59 verses. So forgiveness, it's really, it's not a self-help principle. Jesus' teaching about forgiveness isn't a suggestion, it's a commandment. And with so many of Jesus' teachings is it really confronts us. It's really kind of shocking and blunt and really hits us. So let's walk through this t- t- together. Let's, we're going to go back through, um, starting in verse 23. In verse 23, we see um, 
The king settles his account with his servant. You can see that in verse 23. You know, this parable is therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servant. And then we kind of focus in on one servant. We kind of zoom in on one servant. And this servant owes 10,000 talents. So I did a little math, you know, to put that in today's dollars. Um, A talent, you might have a footnote in your Bible. You know, a talent is 20 years worth of wages. So 20 years of salary for a laborer in that day. So if we just, to make the math easy, if we say $50,000 a year for a salary, that comes out to, and you guys super quick with math, that comes out to a roughly 10 billion with a B dollars. And the point here isn't so much like a specific dollar amount, but it's just that this servant had this astronomical debt. There was no way this servant had any hope of paying this debt off. That's kind of the the point here. Um, And notice like down in verse 25, it says, and it says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. I mean, presumably sold into slavery with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Not a good place to be in. Stop and think about that, friends. Think about being that servant and facing that prospect of being sold into slavery. And your wife and children and all that you had. No hope. So what does he do? Verse 26, the servant pleads with the king. I mean, he's obviously um, grasping at straws here. This is his last hope. It says, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He's asking for mercy. I mean, he's down on his knees begging for mercy. Um, And to somewhat surprising, right in the parable, the king forgives his debt. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's a little shocking, right? You know, out of pity, and from out of pity, the the master forgave him. And from what we can tell in this brief parable, you know, there was really nothing for no reason for us to think the servant had any special merit. There's no reason he was deserving to be forgiven of such a just you know infinite practically debt. Um, so on, so we see that, you know, he had no merit, you know, and on the contrary, and this is one of the main points of the parable, the servant was forgiven solely by, from the mercy of the king, solely from the mercy of the king. And we see mercy here kind of graphically illustrated. So now the parable takes a turn, right? Um, so look, look at verse uh, 28. The parable takes a turn. We're going to say, for sake of um, making it easier for me to talk about, you know, there's going to be two servants here. We're going to call one the big debt servant, the one with the astronomical uh, debt, and the other debt we're going to, uh, the other servant we're going to call the little debt servant. So we see the in verse 28. Um, We see, but when that same servant went out, the big debt servant, he found one of his fellow servants, we're going to call the small debt servant, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Um, so let's stop there just for a second. Like, what's a hundred denarii? Again, if we look at a, a, a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So again, if, just to be um, consistent, if we take like, if we, see, if we assume 
a $50,000 a year salary for laborers, that comes out, 100 denarius comes out to about $20,000. So roughly in our day, $20,000. So we have this, the big debt servants choking this other servant, pay me my $20,000. And that's not uh, an insignificant amount, right? If somebody owed you $20,000, it's not an insignificant amount. But it's not nearly what what the big debt servant owed. So his fellow servant, verse 29, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that before? So keep keep in mind the big debt servant, uh, yeah, the big debt servant, his debt is 500,000 times more than the small debt servant. You're talking 10 billion with a B versus 20,000. So, um, but unfortunately, uh, the big debt servant here imprisons the other servant. Verse 30, he refused and went uh, he, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the, the debt. So we see here that the extraordinary mercy that was granted to the big debt servant by the king had no bearing, no impact on how he related to his fellow servant who owed him money. And of course, a much, much smaller amount of money. So uh, word gets back to the king, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Okay, so here we go. We're heading into the summary. We're heading into the conclusion, sort of the crescendo of this parable. Verse 32 Then his master summoned him, him the big debt servant, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we see um, in this parable, Jesus kind of powerfully shows us that a key to forgiving is understanding how great of a debt we've been forgiven of. So what we want to do in the remainder of our time is we want to try and understand, we want to look at our debt to God And we want to look at God's incredible mercy toward us and then our call to likewise be merciful to others. Okay, so let's just roll right into that. Um, uh, A key to forgiving others is to to understand what we've been forgiven of. So our debt to to God. So I want to try to persuade us from Scripture that we have an enormous, like immeasurable debt to God due to our each of our own personal sin. Okay, so let's... Um, let me see here. So we want to look at, um, before we do that, though, let's step back. I mean, it'll help if we just step back a little bit and remember for, for a minute, like, who God is. How would you say, like, in your own mind, you know, answer this, how would you say God reveals or describes himself in Scripture? 
How would you say, what are some things that come to mind when you think of God revealing himself in Scripture? Like, who is God? What's he like? Who is he? Think about that for a moment. Some things I would throw out there, this isn't an exhaustive list, that he's sovereign. He's eternal. He's the creator and ruler over all. He's just and holy. He's good, loving, kind, and compassionate. And what would you say? I'm sure you could, we could add a lot to that list. So my goal is here to help us get in perspective who our king is and who we've been indebted to. So then how, how would you, like, who, who are we in relation to God? How would you say, who, how would you describe who we are in relation to, to God? I would say that we, I'd say that scripture teaches us we're not our own, right? We're not autonomous, independent beings. We are his creation, created for him and his purposes. We're called to obey and glorify him. And what did Jesus, what was Jesus' response when somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? The greatest commandment is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that kind of reflects because of who God is, we are to honor and worship and glorify him. So sin, like how would we, what would you give as a basic definition of sin? Like if somebody asked you, what's, what's sin? What, what would you say? How, how would you describe it? I would say the scripture says, basically, it's kind of like we could characterize it as choosing our own way. Kind of like we see in Isaiah 53, where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Or we could also characterize it as rebelling against God, throwing his authority off over our lives. Um, we could also say it's just a, it's a willful choice to disobey a loving, holy, and good God. In that moment, right? In that moment, we're, we're throwing off God's authority. We're choosing our way. So what, what does Scripture teach about that, about our sin? Well, it teaches that we've accrued essentially like an infinite debt to God because of our sin. Romans 6.23, a verse familiar to many of us, brings that out so well. says, the wages, the payment of sin is what? Is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So our sin requires a payment. That's the way it is. Our sin against God requires a payment. And that payment is a forfeiting of a life. As Romans 6.23 notes, the payment for sin is death. And if you think back to the beginning, back in um, Genesis, when God first created the world and created Adam and Eve and put them in this perfect environment, a perfect world with perfect harmony between man, God, nature. Um, what did he say? You know, there was that one rule. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. So our sin requires death. In fact, the, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, you know, with the priests and the various personal sacrifices, national sacrifices, ongoing sacrifices, that whole uh, system really showed us and them that our sin against God requires the forfeiting of a life. 
And in fact, the whole system pointed ahead to one day this perfect Lamb of God that, that God was going to provide. His Son, Jesus Christ, would lay down His life for our sin. And Jesus used that language, didn't he? He even said of himself, he said, the son of man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom. He even uses that language to give his life as a ransom for many, for our sin. And in Romans uh, 4.25, kind of touches on that too. It says, talking about Jesus, it says, who was delivered up for our transgressions. And was raised to life for our justification. I mean, Colin recently did a whole sermon series on why Jesus had to die. And in summary, it's because our sin required a payment. It's so that we could be forgiven, so that we could experience salvation. So our sin requires a great debt to God. And I want to look at that kind of in another angle, something maybe we don't think about too much. But um, when we sin, think about this, we're essentially partnering, like linking arms with darkness, with the forces of darkness. And if we look at Ephesians Chapter 5 um, really brings that out for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And um, yeah, if, if we'll get that up on the screen. Ephesians 5, 6 through 11 says, Let no one, thank you, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So when we sin in that moment, we're really partnering with the forces of darkness and evil. Think about that. All the evil we see when we look at the news or read the news or understand what's going on in, in the world. In, think of it. It helps me anyway. I'll say this. It helps me to, to try and combat the sin in my life to think that and realize I'm partnering in a sense with those forces of evil because I'm throwing, I'm rebelling against God. I'm throwing his authority off my life for that moment. And I'm kind of becoming a traitor. I'm like joining forces with, with the domain of darkness. So seeing our sin in this light um, helps us not only to see the seriousness and reality of sin, but it helps us to see when the magnitude of God's mercy and grace toward each one of us in the forgiveness that we've experienced from him. Okay, so one other, one other aspect I want to talk about, about sin is our sin deserves judgment and wrath. And again, the goal here is, is to help us to, to realize that God's mercy and grace is so great toward us. Our rebellion against God deserves his uh, judgment and wrath. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 brings this out so well. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're going to continue on with that passage a little later. There's an amazing but God right at the right at the very next part of this passage. But for now, I want to focus on that fact that we are by nature children of wrath because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion against God. Our sin, no matter how small or trivial we may consider it, results in an incalculable debt against God. And I know I tend to minimize my sin. I can, without even thinking about, oh, that's just a little sin, or oh, that's not a very big deal. And I think that can really be a problem. We think of, like, quote, awful sins that other people or societies involved with, but my own I tend to not make such a big deal of. And Jerry Bridges in his book um, called Respectable Sins wrote, We were incensed, and rightly so, when a major denomination ordained a practicing homosexual as a bishop. Why do we not also mourn over our selfishness, our critical spirit, our impatience, and our anger? It's easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying these sins are not as bad as the flagrant ones in society. That book was written a few years ago, a number of years ago. We could uh, substitute some other things we see in society that we're all appalled about. But God has not given us the authority to establish values for different sins. Instead, he says through James, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable or is guilty of all of it. That's James chapter 2 verse 10. And he goes on to write, yes, the whole idea of sin may have disappeared from our culture. It may have softened in many of our churches so as not to make the audiences uncomfortable. And sad to say, the concept of sin among many conservative Christians has been essentially redefined to cover only the obviously gross sins of our society. The result then is that for many morally upright believers, the awareness of personal sin has effectively disappeared from their consciences. But sin has not disappeared from the sight of God. Rather, all sin, both the so-called respectable sins of the saints, which which we too often tolerate, and the flagrant sins of society, which we are quick to condemn, are a disregard for the law of God and are reprehensible in his sight. Both deserve the curse of God. And then in the rest of the book, which which I I recommend, um, he goes on to talk about some of these sins, um, like respectable sins that in our own lives we don't tend to make much of. Sins such as like frustration, being upset or even angry at whatever or whoever is blocking our plans. Unthankfulness, pride of self-righteousness, an independent spirit, selfishness, lack of self-control. Impatience and irritability, envy, jealousy, and related sins, sins of the tongue such as gossip, slander, harsh words, and so on. So the goal here isn't to beat us down, but the goal is to help us see the reality of our sin, the tremendous debt we have, and then the incredible mercy and grace of God. 
in, and I would say that without understanding like the significance of our sin, I don't know that we can really appreciate, at least to a, even to a small degree, how great God's love and mercy and grace is toward us. Okay, so our next thing is we're going to move into the king's mercy and forgiveness. So we have our debt, like the servant's debt in the parable. We had the king's mercy, and now we want to talk about our king, our God's mercy and grace. So the king's mercy and forgiveness, it wasn't, it it was freely given. It wasn't earned by the servant. The servant had no way to pay his debt. It was completely hopeless. And remember, he he literally got on his knees and, and begged for mercy. And it says the king in verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The English Standard Version, which is a really solid version we use here, uses that phrase, out of pity. Some of you may have the old, the old King James said, um, the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. The New American Standard says, the Lord of that slave felt compassion. So we see the king was moved by mercy and compassion. I would ask you, what passages or instances from the Bible can you think of which demonstrate the undeserved compassion of God towards you? What passages can you think of? I think one of the most wonderful passages is a continuation of that passage we read in Ephesians. The passage we read in Ephesians that ended with, we're all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As we continue with that, Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 um, says, uh, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Remember, it comes right on the heels of, uh, we were by nature children of wrath. Then we have, but God being rich in mercy. Think of that word, rich. Our God is rich in mercy. He's not measured or stingy. He extends his mercy toward us because of his great love for us. He saves us by his grace, his unearned favor. God is overflowing in mercy, love, and grace. He wants us to be reconciled. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to be restored to him. Just think how beautiful and amazing and wonderful God is. Like as we've already mentioned, probably painfully so, you know, our sin deserves God's judgment and wrath. We stand guilty before him, but he had compassion and mercy on us and sent his son to lay down his life for us. And Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and sin, and also signifying that Jesus' payment met uh, he, he, he met that debt. Jesus' payment was sufficient. It was complete. It was adequate. So now we can have our sins forgiven and be completely restored to God. Have you recognized the seriousness of your sin and your great need for a Savior? Have you in simple faith turned from your sin and turned to God in faith and trust? 
Romans 10, 9 and 10 has a wonderful promise for us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with our with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And this mercy, this forgiveness, it was at great cost to the king. Um, there's a typo. That's my mistake. It should be $10 billion, not $20 billion. We're thinking like that the big debt servant owed approximately $10 billion. But it, that forgiveness and mercy came at great cost. Think about that. Uh, that's a lot of money for that king to overlook, to forgive, right? To cancel out. And we see a similar thought in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. It's through the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. God's offer of forgiveness cost the life of his son. And notice um, that God's forgiveness is according to the riches. Again, we see that wonderful word, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Like, I'm a frugal person. You could ask uh, my, my wife or kids. They could definitely testify and probably share plenty of unflattering stories of my frugalness. And uh, those of us who are members of the fellowship of the frugal know that we can be very measured in the amount of cost or expense that we want to take on. But God, in contrast, is lavish. He's not frugal. Thank God he's lavish. Lavish with his grace. That's the word that he uses to describe it. And I love some of the uh, dictionary definitions of the word lavish such as large in quantity and expensive or impressive, expending or bestowing profusely to expend or give in great amounts or without limit. Think again of the beauty, the wonder, the glory of God that he is lavish, lavish in mercy, lavish in grace. You got to love that phrase, but God, he's rich in mercy, lavishing his grace, forgiving, redeeming, restoring, rebirthing us, making us spiritually alive and making us his own dearly loved children. Let the wonder of it sink in and bring joy to your heart. Say it to yourself in the mundane parts of the day, in the mundane task of the day. Marvel in his grace, lavish, lavish toward you. I'm not one who naturally wakes up really cheery and rested. I have a minor uh, sleep disorder that most days I wake up feeling as tired as when I went to bed, which was a tired state. So I, most, of, most days I have to intentionally just get my mind focused on these kind of truths to help cheer me up a little bit, to help face the day. So I kind of urge you similarly, you may not have that same uh, disposition that I do, but it takes intentional, it takes intentionality. Think about these truths. And I know for many of us, we've been in a church many years, maybe our whole lives. We've, we know a lot of scripture. We sing songs about these truths, but we often need to just stop and, and own them and embrace them and think about them, meditate on them. 
Okay, so that's, that's really good, right? Our debt, not, not so good, not so great, talking about um, our sin, the judgment and wrath, um, our partnering with darkness. But uh, God's mercy and grace, that's definitely good news. So that leads us into how are we to live? So it's kind of obvious right from this parable, how are we to live regarding forgiveness? It's to forgive as God has forgiven us. That's the whole point of the parable, that we are to forgive as God has forgiven us. And Jesus used these amazing contrasts, right? 10 billion versus 20,000 to help, I think, shake us and wake us um, of what we've been forgiven of. So that in turn, we will forgive those who have hurt and offended us. And I will say that I recognize that for many of us, we have been deeply hurt. We, some of us have suffered physical abuse or sexual abuse, and there's great hurt there. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying it's light. But I'm saying this is what Jesus calls us to. And ultimately, his words are words of life. They're words of um, hope. They're words of goodness for our souls. That we need to apply. So how are we to live? Forgive and have mercy on one another. Um, another, you know, this isn't the only place in, in the Bible that talks about the importance of forgiveness um, and, and using this comparison of God forgiving us so we should forgive others. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 13 puts it so well. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It doesn't say you should consider forgiving or maybe it's a good option. We must forgive. And Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So simply put, if God who's holy and perfect and awesome in every regard forgave us who are fallen and sinful, how can we, who are we not to forgive somebody else? Are we higher? Are we better than God? Can we place ourselves higher than him? Okay, so how do we practically live this out? When we need to forgive, it's often, it's very difficult, right? I mean, small annoyances may be not quite so hard, but real hurts. And, and it's in the closest of families and marriages and things like that where we experience hurt. It's, it's not so easy. But when we need to forgive, my suggestion is intentionally reflect on your and my immeasurable debt to God. Remember that debt. We need to start there. Remember that debt. Thank God for his full forgiveness. And picture, use that parable that, think of that, the big debt servant like choking that small debt servant. I, I'm not saying I'm very good at this, but it helps me to think that if I'm not forgiving somebody, it's like I've got my hands on their throat. Do I want to be that that servant and pray and ask God for help repeatedly? Like I said, I know it can be difficult and oftentimes we have to forgive over and over, don't we, for a deep hurt. We have to keep work working through that. 
Okay, we also need to touch on, um, in this parable, there's a, there's a severe warning. And we need to t- touch on that for a moment. Um, if, it's easy, like when I'm reading a severe warning like Jesus has here, it's easy to brush it aside or want to quickly get to the next verse, the next passage. But Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you not, do not forgive your brother from your heart. And that so also was referring back to the king in anger, throwing that big debt servant to the jailers. But the Greek word there really means torturers until he should pay all his debt. And this isn't the only place where Jesus um, teaches this about forgiveness. At the In Matthew chapter 6, at the end, we have what we call like the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and so on. At the end of it, in, in Matthew, in verses 14 and 15, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I mean, remember this parable was spoken to followers of Christ. He spoke it to Peter and the disciples. And we need to heed Jesus' warning to us as followers of Christ. And I looked into this a bit, and I looked at different commentators and so on, and I don't know exactly what the quote will do to every one of you, exactly how that works out, like what the Father does. you know. But I, I, I don't know, but I know I don't want to be the recipient of it. I know it's a serious warning, and we should not be quick to brush it aside. So if you or I choose not to forgive from the heart, then this blunt and serious promise from Jesus applies to us. That the Father is going to do something that will be very unpleasant for us. And by the way, as a quick side note, like the commentators, um, several well-respected commentators that I was reading, um, I think they look at it more as this would be if you persist in unforgiveness it it could well be a sign you've never truly been saved we're not we don't earn our salvation by forgiving but if you persist in that way it might be a wake-up call that have you ever really been redeemed have you experienced that mercy and forgiveness of god another well-respected bible teacher felt that it, it may refer to a temporary and severe chastisement or discipline of christians But either way, we don't want to be on the receiving end of that, right? So let's take that to heart. Okay, so I'm going to finish out, um, to be quick here, and finish out with uh, a brief um, story of um, from Corey Ten Boom. I'm sure um, many of you are familiar with her from the hiding place. Her family during World War II, her family lived in the Netherlands in Holland, and they were part of the underground to um, uh, um, rescue Jews from, from the Nazis. So... Um, her, her father, you know, they were eventually caught. You know, I think she was like 59 or so when they were caught. Her father, her sister, Betsy, died in German concentration camps. Her brother was in prison and died shortly after war from a, a disease I think he contracted in the camp. So I'm going to read a, um, a personal uh, story from her. And um, it's from um, guidepost.com on, on Online, So, because um, this really illustrates what we've been talking about here, and then, then we're going to close. So this is her. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. 
A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was a truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are th- were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence collected their wraps. In silence left the room. That's when I saw him working his way forward against the other. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. I mean, she's flashing back to her time in the concentration camp. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than to take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I've done. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. 
Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth began, seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried. Sorry. I knew I was going to have, I knew this was going to happen at some point. I was practicing the message this morning. I knew, I knew, I knew I was going to get a little choked up. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never had a difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them afresh from God each day. Let me close this, close this, uh, this uh, message in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your amazing, incredible uh, forgiveness. Will you help us, Lord? We're, we're weak. We're dull. We, don't, we hardly have a glimpse of the magnitude of your forgiveness toward us. Help our hearts to be thrilled with you, with your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. Help us to then, therefore, be merciful and gracious to our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our colleagues, those around us. Help us, Lord. We thank you in your name. Amen.